Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Sally Cherry, and today we are discussing the third United Nations, how a knowledge ecology helps the UN think, by Tatiana Karyanis and Thomas G. Weiss, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Dr. Tatiana Karyanis is director of the Social Science Research Council's Conflict Prevention and Peace Forum, CPPF. Understanding Violent Conflict, the UVC program, and China and the Global South program. Professor Thomas G. Weiss is Presidential Professor of Political Science at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and Director Emeritus of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies. Tatiana and Tom, thank you for being here today. Our pleasure. Pleased to be here. Tatiana, you and Tom were both part of the UN Intellectual History Project, and I'm sure um, the idea for this book has been um, years in the making. You might not know this, but I first heard about this book's idea in the first session of a class on the United Nations um, in the first year of my PhD with Tom. Uh, So I was excited when the book came out in flesh and paper. Uh, Tell us a little about this book and how it relates to your previous work for the UN Intellectual History Project. Uh, Thanks, Sally. Um, Indeed, this idea grew out of our work on the UN Intellectual History Project uh, that ran for uh, a little over 10 years, uh, starting in 1999. And that project aimed to better understand a key puzzle in contemporary affairs, which was how ideas eventually become part of international discourse, policy, and, and action. And so our work on the intellectual history of the UN showed us the importance of the research community, key actors in the third UN, in informing UN thinking. So this led to our conceptualization of the third UN in an article we wrote for Global Governance in 2009, together with Richard Jolly. And Tom and I decided over many pints of Guinness a decade later that the pandemic would be a good opportunity to expand on, on the concept. So it was clear to us in the, in the current uh, polarized context that if the world organization and the UN system were to become more effective or frankly even survive, the thinking to reimagine and redesign contemporary global governance would have to come from what we described a decade ago as the third UN. And just uh, to, to um, tell your readers how we precisely we define the, the third UN, it's the ecology of supportive non-state actors, intellectual scholars, consultants, think tanks, NGOs, the private sector and the media that interacts with the intergovernmental machinery of the first and second UN 
to formulate and refine UN ideas and decision-making at key junctures in policy processes. So we published uh, the third UN, How Knowledge Ecology Helps the UN Think, with Oxford University Press in 2021, and the paperback's coming out this year. Great. Thank you. Um, um, I actually, I was very excited about the book. We are going to get into the book's argument, but thank you for um, this introduction. Tom, you've published a dozen books about um, the UN, um, a prominent one being What is Wrong with the UN and How to Fix It, which came out in 2016. I remember the public conversations we had um, in New York in 2016 about the selection of the UN Gen- uh, Secretary General, and many of the candidates for the job said in this panel uh, we had that they had read your book. Um, is this a good example of how the third UN works in practice? And, um, and, and do your previous books take into account the idea of the third UN? Or is this a book a complete break uh, with your previous work? Well, thanks. The, the meeting was interesting because it was nice to hear that some people still read books, uh, particularly ones running for high office. Um, this is a bit of a break in the sense that uh, before I returned to the the uh, fuzzy-headed academic uh, ivory tower, I worked in the UN for 10 years in, in Geneva. So as a member of the second UN, as a civil servant, uh, much of my earlier work actually focused on what could be done by the people who are paid by member states to act. However... Uh, you sh- will note, or, or maybe your listeners should note, that the third UN is in uh, quotes uh, because it doesn't really describe a category typically in the lexicon of analysts or administrators. So when we began this project, um, we had the, the usual binary of member states being the first UN and civil servants, including the secretary general on down, uh, in the second UN. Uh, Those were the units of analysis most people use. So it became clear in looking at the world of ideas, norms, principles, and standards that helping the UN think uh, is particularly important when politicians and pundits and people are looking for answers uh, especially at present, when <laughs> it seems to me that the World Organization is largely missing in action. And the sources of those ideas almost always comes from outside the first and the second. So when we began looking at how to conceptualize what makes a difference, we had to come up with a, a category. So it's in quotation marks, but it's very much part and parcel of everything that member states and the the secretariats do. Uh, Great. Thank you. And we're going to, throughout the the podcast, we're going to come back to examples of how this third UN contributes um, to the UN, its thinking um, and its operations. Tatiana, you start the book with a puzzle about the impact of non-state actors that you just mentioned, the media, academics, uh, commissions, on how the UN thinks and how we think about the UN. I want to start by questioning the question, which is, does the UN think? Uh, And how should we understand the act of thinking for an intergovernmental organization such as the United Nations? Thanks, Ali. Well, the the UN thinks in in a number of different ways, uh, through lessons learned, after action reviews, mandate reviews, conflict analyses, and, and so on. 
And as Tom mentioned, uh, UN officials also read, maybe not all of them, but many do. And in fact, the UN has long been a major consumer of research and, and evidence. There's also the revolving door of individuals. We've had Nobel laureates work in the UN. UN officials leave to join think tanks and universities uh, and, and, and so on. So while we conceptualized the third UN as a key part of the UN only a decade ago, the engagement of intellectual non-state actors with the UN, frankly, isn't new. In fact, Stephen Schlesinger, the, the historian, reminds us that there were about 1,500 advocacy groups, lobbyists, consultants, and academics, particularly university presence, at the nine-week San Francisco conference that established the UN in 1945. And these included the New York City Council on African Affairs and the NAACP, whose research director at the time, W.E.B. Du Bois, was among the leading American voices opposed to colonialism. So the, the UN has a decades-long history of consuming, incubating, originating, and disseminating ideas and social knowledge from human rights to full employment, from climate change to peacekeeping. So the third UN as a knowledge system has been an important intellectual partner at various levels within the intergovernmental machinery since the organization's inception. So yes, the, the UN does think. Uh, interesting. I, I, I worked with some of the UN officials at the political mission uh, in Colombia, and I'm always amazed by uh, how much research is consumed by uh, UN civil servants. Uh, they definitely read my works. <laughs> uh, and um, I, I'm just always amazed at the uh, academic libraries that exist in some of these uh, UN headquarters. All right, Tom, uh, how important is this act of thinking for the UN? Um, does the UN think, therefore it is, um, a la Descartes? Uh, would the organization organizations stop being relevant if it ceased to think? Because a lot of our um, listeners or readers, frankly, might think of the UN as um, as an operational power horse. Um, every time there's a catastrophe, the UN is called in uh, to sort of uh, maybe deal with the side effects of that uh, catastro- catastrophe. But um, to what extent uh, is thinking a crucial part of the UN? Well, I... There are two big sets of activities in the UN, two big outputs. One happens to be those operations you're speaking about, uh, helping refugees, uh, IDPs, internally displaced people in the Ukraine, uh, running technical assistance in Botswana, etc. But the other main project, and this is not the one that get emphasized in budgets, happens to be uh, moving out norms, principles, and ideas. Uh, and so every time there's a, uh, a new secretary general, he always begins, or he to date anyway, with a proposal about how to improve the operations. And while um, I don't misunderstand me, I, who could be against better peacekeeping or better humanitarian relief or better infant vaccinations or better training of statisticians? But this project for us suggested that the UN's main impact and main legacy and main multiplier, all of that results from formulating ideas, norms, standards, and principles, and afterwards trying to monitor them. So this is really a very important part of what goes on thinking. However, (laughs) I'm not going to say that the job descriptions of government officials and uh, UN officials uh, 
exclude thinking, but their job descriptions don't emphasize, with rare exceptions, uh, thinking because the, the main job description includes trying to keep 193 member states happy all of the time. And in that context, this and this is where we emphasize the role of the third UN in helping the whole UN think, uh, is that this the outside insiders, is what we call them, or inside outsiders, whatever one you'd like to emphasize, the third UN can and has historically played a, a formidable role uh, in shaping international public policy and monitoring uh, those commitments. Uh, we see this because uh, they tend to be smaller, more flexible, better networked, and less bound by the constraints that dictate the del- deliberations in public forums that are attended by senior or junior, junior officials from governments and, and secretaries. So this is really very much part of the UN's output Uh, And it's why we emphasize uh, the third UN in this whole exercise. Um, Interesting. Uh, Tatiana, the book distances itself from the narrative of the UN being made of uh, what Tom mentioned, the first UN made of member states and the second UN made of the executive heads and the staff. Um, um, And then the book goes on to elaborate on the role of NGOs, academics, think tanks, the media, consultants, and for-profit private sector as an integral part of the UN. Um, How does the book envision the work of these entities um, as a whole? And how are these an integral uh, part of the UN? Well, as as um, as both you and, and Tom have have mentioned, uh, our, our point of departure was Innes Claude's classic framework of the first UN of member states and the second UN of secretariats. <clears throat> but as we argue, there's there's also a a third UN, just as there is a third African Union and a third European Union. It's the the what we argue is that the interaction of these non-state actors with governments and intergovernmental bureaucracies helps explain shifts in policies, priorities, and and practices. Third UN actors can, for example, occasionally bring in new ideas and evidence, both in the long and in the short uh, term. They can formulate and refine ideas and decision-making and policy processes. Uh, They can often say what UN civil servants and policymakers can't, Uh, And I'll say we because we're all members of the third UN here, but we can have the difficult conversations. And and in fact, as we saw around uh, COVID responses, research institutions can often come together even when governments uh, are unable to. We can also mediate between governments and, and their publics, helping to explain policies uh, and, and research can also help hold policymakers uh, accountable. So the, the third UN's roles include research, policy analysis, um, pushing out of ideas, advocacy, as well as public education. Uh, it's, it, they, they, they push forward new information and ideas. They push for alternative policies. And they also mobilize public opinion around UN deliberations and projects. And while some third UN actors advocate for particular ideas, others help analyze or operationalize their testing and the implementation of 
of those ideas. So, so the 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 uh, an integral part of the overall UN because the the three UNs together can be usefully understood as a progressively evolving and and symbiotic knowledge economy. Together, their accumulated experience since 1945 has been used with varied success uh, to address some of the world's most complex uh, challenges. And uh, Tatiana, as someone who uh, clearly belongs to the third UN, again, I want to come back to you and and ask for uh, the role of the SSRC uh, as a think tank or a research center uh, in the workings of the UN. But it has um, somehow become clear to me that it is very difficult to publish as a as a UN civil servant, right? There are, um, there are restrictions on what can be said uh, as someone uh, who represents uh, the organization. Um, and I wonder if if you both, just, just if you were opining, if you think this is a good thing, that civil servants are not maybe allowed or encouraged to think or produce ideas, and this job is sort of left uh, to the third UN, so that academics, uh, think tanks, NGOs, um, especially with uh, norm entrepreneurship, they 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 are asked to jump in and think for the UN. Uh, do you think just normatively uh, uh, this is uh, like it should have been like this, or do you think uh, it would have been better if UN civil servants uh, published paper, books and journal articles, etc.? Tom, do you want to? Yeah, why don't I jump in? I, I've always been appalled at the uh, interpretation of UN uh, staff rules, which uh, supposedly prohibit uh, writing. Uh, and it, it only in the silliest of interpretations that they, there's much more room to do this. And you know, I'm not tooting my own horn here, but when I was a civil servant for uh, 10 years, uh, I actually published three books and a whole slew of articles um, because I really felt I had something to say and I had time to do so. And I had people above me who, unlike other parts of the UN, encouraged me to actually write. I find that all too many civil servants use the excuse that they're not supposed to read, they're not supposed to write, they're not supposed to be in a public eye to uh, be lazy, not all of them, as Tatiana has noted, but far too many of them. There's much more room to push out various envelopes than people commonly think. And I would like to push that out, and I tried to do it while I was inside, and I certainly think it's important for those of us on the outside to keep nudging uh, folks, because as we have argued, the production of new norms and ideas is one of the main leverages that the UN system presents. Right, Tatiana, go ahead. I don't have much to add to what Tom has said. I think it really does depend on the individuals and on their uh, supervisors and how as Tom said, they interpret the, uh, the the rules. There are UN officials who who do publish, uh, who participate in academic conferences. As as I said earlier, there are there is this revolving door of human capital, 
where academics join uh, the international civil service and, um, and, and vice versa. So depending on the individual, if they want to remain current in their, um, in their disciplines and their fields, they do uh, manage, they find ways to continue to engage with, um, with academic scholarship and academic communities. So it really, while it's not always encouraged, uh, it is done more frequently than, uh, than we realize today. Um, I agree, and um, and I would say uh, it is sometimes uh, these uh, these norms, these laws that exist with regard to uh, uh, publications by um, by civil servants. Is, they are they are in some cases very limiting. Uh, I worked for the office for disarmament affairs at the UN headquarters, um, and uh, it would have been next to impossible for me to publish anything on disarmament, which w- one could say um, is a hairy issue. Um, and so I suppose, um, uh, you know, maybe on other issues, it would be easier to uh, contribute to, um, to, um, to knowledge production. But um, I found personally on the issue of disarmament, it was it was next to impossible to um, uh, to sort of voice uh, uh, certain concerns or issues or put uh, put proposals uh, forward um, as someone who represented uh, the U.N. All right. Um, Tom, I don't know if you remember, but you started our UN class back in 2015 by asking us to enumerate and describe the main theories in international relations. I want to return to this service and ask you how this book fits within IR theories. Uh, if we think of the UN within the book's framework as a thinking and norm-setting entity, then I wonder if we can take a constructivist approach and say that these norms and with them the UN identity changes over time. Uh, do you think that uh, we can uh, think of the UN this way? Yeah, I think if I may just jump in, um, nothing in this book or in our conversation today suggests that there's not a wide variety of uh, members of the third UN and they vary widely and wildly in numbers and quality and location. Uh, And I think Tatiana, your question, Sally, about what the SSRC does uh, is important because personal relationships and actual physical proximity and at least for UN headquarters in New York and Geneva is really quite important. And the second thing, which was, I think that's where you ended up, Tatiana, uh, is that, um, you know, effective relations, effective convening, effective presentation of esoteric research is not just done by any academic or anything think tank so these personal relationships are really really important and a track record of having uh performed good work and having had decent relationships and being an honest broker are really essential Right. Uh, Tom, the the book's third chapter focuses on the work of uh, commissions and panels as part of the third UN. I want to focus on their role in peace operations. How did the Brahimi report of uh, 2000 and the 2015 high-level independent panel 
on UN peace operations, which is uh, commonly known as the HIPPO report. How did they change the ideational and normative landscape of uh, peace operations? Uh, so I guess what I'm asking is, how did the third UN in this case contribute to the work of second UN uh, through the work of these commissions and panels? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> actually, the, the ones on peacekeeping are a better question for Tatiana, but both of those reports have had an impact on the way states and the way uh, the UN Secretariat operates. Uh, what we tried to emphasize in the book is the importance of independent, autonomous, outside voices saying what the Secretariat actually probably already knows, but sometimes needs outsiders to say in a very loud voice. Uh, and uh, it's important, too, to keep the distinction in mind between, I think, between UN finance-sponsored um, panels and ones that are uh, more independent, more uh, independently financed, name their own uh, commissioners or panelists rather than having the secretary general and the 38th floor put them together. So in the story we tell, and you know, part of this is self-interested, so maybe we should disregard it, but we think that the, the, the two outside commissions that have had the most impact over the long term on thinking and doing in the UN happened to have been the uh, Brundtland commission uh, from 1987, which changed the vocabulary and the notion of what development means in terms of sustainability, <clears throat> and the other being the Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, uh, which in its 2001 report actually changed the way we think about when one can come to the rescue and when state sovereignty can be set aside uh, in favor of protecting people. Uh, right. Tatiana, would you like to add something about uh, the Brahimi report and the role of the third UN in um, um, in composing this report and its uh, eventual impact on the work of the UN? Sure. Uh, both Brahimi and, and uh, the Brahimi report and the HIPPO report uh, 15 years later essentially drew on emerging thinking in the think tank community in the academic community that said that we need new peacekeeping tools, that the tools that we were using uh, had not kept up or adapted to the, uh, to, to the shifting context, um, uh, glo global context. And so that was, um, uh, that, that was what Brahimi did. And that was what the hippo report also did by then consolidating in one in one blockbuster policy <clears throat> report the the thinking in the broader ecosystem about how to reform uh, UN peace operations and and then um, uh, once that those each one of those reports came out they had then their own. Uh, uh, lifespan uh, in, in setting both policy agendas, but then also in turn informing uh, research uh, agendas. And frankly, the, the HIPPO report actively solicited 
um, intellectual contributions from from think tanks and uh, and academics worldwide, uh, written contributions on uh, on on key challenges that um, that that the panel was uh, was grappling with, and a lot of the ideas contained in those written contributions found their way in uh, in into both of those uh, reports and certainly the the HIPAA report. Right. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think what we say in the book, Tatiana, is that yeah. frequently uh, academic research needs to be translated yes. into prose uh, for policymakers uh, to help inform practice. I think what you've just said that, that you know, sometimes complex ideas and jargon uh, need to be translated to make them slightly more readable, digestible, and operationally relevant. And that's that's one of the things that I think those two um, panels did, the, the Brahimi and the Hippo. Uh, and that's one of the jobs uh, of think tanks and outsiders, the ones who are effective anyway, is that they can bring these into uh, a context in which decision makers can actually at least think about them and occasionally make a decision. Indeed, I mean the the, the this um, function of translation or the, the the function of of knowledge brokerage is 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 key. Um, and and it you mentioned proximity earlier, Tom. That's uh, that's important. Um, because it's it's important to be an um, an effective knowledge broker, and effectively translate complex ideas and academic scholarship, um, in 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 a way that is easily both understood and and absorbed uh, by by policy uh, actors. Um, one also needs to know not only how the sausage is, how the policy sausage is made inside the, the in this case, the UN, but also when this uh, these ideas are um, are are needed, and and so this um, uh, not only this relationship of trust that we spoke about, but uh, the this um, proximity, partly physical proximity, but just the 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 regular engagement with UN policymakers is is critical to know when during a policy process an injection of new thinking or different thinking uh, will will have an impact or is is needed. Um, and and where there's a, also a demand, uh, knowing where when and where there is a demand for for this kind of external thinking, is also important to make both uh, the this this brokerage uh, function and the translation function uh, effective. I, you know, and if I may just chime in, I th- I think one of the things that we shouldn't imply is that. Basic research uh, is not important. In fact, one of the dangers of repackaging by these commissions is that these would not have occurred without a lot of other preliminary work that was uh, financed and by foundations and by governments, etc. And I think one of the dangers that um, we see is that uh, <laughs> in the scramble for funds and the fact that philanthropic philanthropic organizations and governments 
want to seem relevant is that they don't want to kind of fund the basic research that was actually behind the, the Brundtland report that was behind the Commission on Intervention and Safety, that was behind Brahimi, that was behind the prevention reports, that was behind HIPAA. And so uh, we don't want to imply here that uh, basic research doesn't need to be done, uh, even if it's translated or repackaged by these commissions or panels. That's very interesting because the basic research is funded by universities, right? Um, and um, and uh, and research centers. Um, uh, the National Science Foundation uh, funds a lot of uh, research in political science that is then uh, that then forms the background to these reports. Okay, I um, I want to uh, ask a question about contemporary politics and uh, and ask you maybe um, uh, to answer somebody's question if they were a UN skeptic. Um, I so I I want to read this line from the book which I really liked. This is on page twenty five. You say. Ideas, concepts, standards, principles, and norms are the UN's most important asset, a legacy that has been a driving force in many areas of human progress. They have set past, present, and future agendas for international peace and security, human rights and humanitarian action, and sustainable development. Uh, So what if someone is a UN skeptic and says, well, the UN was founded seven decades ago. If the UN had been such a strong driving force in human progress, if if the UN had had the best of the ideas, why do we still have peacekeepers in the Golan Heights? Uh, why is the Syrian civil war still going on? Why is Russia still in Ukraine a year after the invasion? Why are children still dying from malnutrition in Yemen? Um, do you think... what? So number one, Tom and Tatiana, both of you, what would you say to a UN skeptic? And who do you think is at fault uh, with regards to these issues? Is it the third UN that hasn't contributed enough ideas is it the second UN or is it the first UN? Tom? <laughs> who, who jumps in here? Um, th- there are faulty parties across the board, um, but I think it's important in trying to decide uh, what happens and what doesn't happen. Uh, if you want to keep people's feet to the fire, you have to keep the right people's feet to the fire. So to uh, look at some awful situation, let's just go back in in time. Let's say the the, the Rwandan genocide. I mean, you can certainly point fingers at the entire Security Council, permanent members and elected members for having been sitting on their duff. In that instance, you certainly couldn't point your finger at Romeo Dallaire and the the handful of peacekeepers uh, who couldn't react. Uh, They wanted to act. They just didn't have the wherewithal to react. And you also couldn't point your fingers at the ICRC and other groups on the ground who were calling uh, for more help. So I think it's, as I say, specific situations require specific blaming and shaming. Uh, And if we, I don't take whatever... Uh, recent crisis you want in your list, Sally. I mean, the, the Ukraine. Obviously, this the first UN is is pathetic. Uh, the Security Council is paralyzed; is doing nothing. But a couple of members of the second UN, and we might even say the Secretary General was useful, as I wouldn't usually 
characterize his behavior. But in, in helping to cut a deal on, on grain that has been important for Africa and Asia and Latin America. And you certainly couldn't criticize the members of the second UN who were on the front lines, uh, the, the UNICEF, the World Food Program, the High Commissioner for Refugees, et cetera, who are trying to deal with the worst humanitarian crisis in Europe uh, since uh, World War II. Uh, so it's important uh, for those skeptics to not say the UN, but to say either the first, the second, or the third, depending on the situation. I see. Thank you. And just to, to add to this, uh, we are going through, I think, a, a, a period of uh, momentous shifts in, uh, in, in the post war order. Uh, we're not quite sure where we're going, but we know that uh, the post-war order is in flux and um, necessity uh, is the, the mother of invention, as the old adage says. And we are now in the process of, of um, seeing a lot of discussion in and around the UN on reinventing rethinking uh, multilateral cooperation to adapt to this uh, shifting uh, global context. So stay tuned. Great. Uh, thank you. Okay. This was a great conversation. Instead of asking more questions, I want to give our listeners the chance to read the book for themselves. The book also discusses interesting contributions by NGOs, uh, the media, the tech industry, and other alternative voices that I have had to leave out of this podcast. Uh, I know you both have interesting works in the pipeline. I hope you come back uh, and discuss them uh, with us. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. The book we discussed was The Third United Nations, How a Knowledge Ecology Helps the UN Think, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.